Welcome to the Redemptification Podcast, where we focus on inspiring people and communities and starting conversations around the topic of redemptification. Redemptification we define as the creative work of redeeming a person or place to its intended beauty and glory. I'm your host, John Marsh, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ty Maloney. Well, welcome to the Redemptification Podcast. It's going to be a great one today. I'm so excited to have Eric Weatherholt, a real estate developer, food and beverage investor, and a walkable neighborhood enthusiast. Um, he's He's got a unique way of seeing the world, and I knew I had to have him on once I heard him on the Fort podcast with our friend um, that, has, that has had him on and talked about these things with, uh, with him, Chris Powers. So he's a co-founder of Healy Weather, Weatherholtz property and he's worn many hats throughout the time from leasing agent property manager construction he's a practical guy with a practical phd in this i said the great thing about it is he's not up in the stands hollering at people he's down on the field with his pads on making a difference i'm excited to learn more about his wisdom of placemaking curating spaces and experiences around development eric thanks for joining us right on thanks for having me this is great well, um, your work is interesting. As I was thinking about and preparing for today, I thought, you know, people want to build unicorns, and it seems like you actually have done some of that. Unique places <laughs> that make a difference and have a life of their own. So tell us about the work you do there and kind of what your experience has been in curating a unique space, and I guess a lot of it there in, in Midtown in Atlanta. <clears throat> Well, yeah, I, I think got started in the in the business in the early '90s and had a great, uh, a, a very fortunate uh, entree into the real estate world. I got um, I, I hired on with a group, and this was sort of at the end of the RTC era. And this group was a was a super passionate uh, collection of former Rouse employees sort of studied at the knee of a guy named Jim Rouse who had a who had done some uh, big thinking uh, very successful developer and so at this time properties were getting thrown back to uh, life insurance companies getting foreclosed on and this company uh, provided the service of helping these companies, these life companies deal with this onslaught of properties coming back to them and help them work it out. And they had so much business that uh, <laughs> they just needed somebody to get in the way. So I know knew nothing about nothing and uh, was hired on to work on properties kind of all over the country from, you know, regional malls to strip centers to big mixed use properties. And I would go, uh, you know, six months on one and then move on to the next one. And <laughs> there was so much going on the money. Uh, these insurance companies had no end of the money and they said, we just want to make it as worth as much as possible. Tell us what to do. And so it was a great, it was unbelievable. And basically there was no oversight because the company was so busy. So I'd get turned loose on some huge project and, uh, <laughs> you know, had a, had a big fat checkbook to, and I got to see what the first person did wrong. And then I got to use somebody else's money to see if I could fix it. And, um, 
and so that was a that was a crash course in uh, in learning, and then that led to a host of other roles with some public companies, and then became an entrepreneur about uh, twenty years ago, and um, all focused on retail and food and beverage and repositioning of those types of properties. <clears throat> and one of the big ideas uh, hit. Uh, in the early 2000s, I was working in Phoenix right before I, uh, right before I started the company. And I was working on a very large scale project out, a couple really large scale projects out in, uh, out on the West Coast. And across the street from where I was officing was a little 1950s uh, strip center that I look at out the office window and uh, a uh, successful restaurant executive bought it personally bought this property and went about uh just pimping it out in in such a fantastic way kind of keeping it this uh mid-century modern vibe but did a great job in putting in these different uh uh different restaurants that he backed one of them uh in the old post office space was called il postino and it became almost instantly very simple place. They sold, they sold uh, uh, wine and and uh, things on small pieces of toast to attractive females throughout Phoenix, and it was <laughs> packed every day. And um, and it was just a raging success. But but the neighborhood around it, I was driving through, and there was a house for sale. I pulled over. And this is maybe, uh, I don't know, a mile from the little shopping center. And there's one of the real estate boxes in the yard with the flyers. I pulled out the flyer, you know, three bedroom, two bath, whatever the price was. And it said walking distance to Il Postino. And so the (laughs) point being that uh, a mile away uh, in a pretty unwalkable part of the world, the value of that property was uh, and was impacted by what this guy was doing uh, with this with the shopping center. And so something registered to me like he's not getting paid for that, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and uh, so there's this, you know, uh, and then and then once you start thinking about things in that way, you start seeing it everywhere, and where these little. Uh, you know, little, little nodes of light start to happen. It has a halo effect on things around it in a very wide uh, spectrum in a, in, a, in a long, you know, like this is a, a mile away and this, that house was worth more because this, what this fella had done with uh, selling wine and toast. So anyway, <clears throat> a long circuitous route to get to the point of seeing if you, if you do things, uh, that people respond to and enjoy, then that has a ripple effect on things around it for a, for a wide swath of geography. And the more intense you can make that uh, little point of light, the bigger the impact on the stuff around it. Now, where it gets interesting is the those things, you know, he, he made a few dollars, uh, actually Postino's turned into a great company, but 
you know, a lot of those things didn't have a uh, long tenure with them and may not have made a ton of money, but there was a ton of value that was created in the, in the bigger area. So what, what we've come to through, through lots of different <laughs> uh, iterations have come to find that when you can combine these things, create these desirable places, which in and of themselves may be small scale and not super profitable. In fact, sometimes they lose money. <laughs> but if you com combine them uh, and, and think of them contextually with what's happening all around it, that becomes how uh, you can make something that's really terrific. Sort of thinking like, you know, building the golf course that you sell the lots around or the ocean that the condos are built by, these things become in some ways an amenity that changes the value of things around it. So if you're only focused on the, on the, uh, on the core part of it, some, a lot of times it doesn't make much monetary sense and people gloss over it. But when you think of it with a wide aperture, there's immense amount of value that can be created. And so it's then figuring out structures that allow everybody to participate in that. Man, you said it so good. <laughs> I love that. That was perfect. That's what we've seen in small towns that one iconic hospitality, food and beverage can be a real catalytic force to the property around it. And if you align that with the methods in which you curate all the property and don't just look at it as a single um, way to try to do something, a single business, it can be really powerful. So tell us some of the ways you align these properties. How, how do you take and, and get this larger aperture? So in a, in a couple of instances, one of the, uh, one of the great uh, success stories and, and evolving success stories, I think, of this sort of, of process is a project that we're involved in, and I will take um, absolutely zero credit for it. We are a, uh, we're uh, teamed up with some super talented folks that do the actual, that are doing the actual work, but the um, uh, the Atlanta Braves stadium, uh, in just South of downtown Atlanta got, uh, plopped in to, to, to back up a little bit that, and the area South of downtown Atlanta for years was a, uh, since the civil war was a very diverse, vibrant, um, community and had, um, uh, had a had a great history in the in the uh, in the history of Atlanta. In the '60s, a interstate was put through there, and when the interstate came through, it just ripped this you know community in half and um, changed the entire functionality of of what used to be you know a charming grid system of of uh, street front shops and neighborhoods. And the areas just started to uh, spiral down. Very diverse areas started to spiral down. And uh, uh, through, through a series of things, government, big government came to the rescue with building things like stadiums. And uh, this is where the Olympics were. 
and lots of major dollars were pumped into it that had actually the opposite of the intended effect. So in the case of the, uh, I'm leaving out some, some steps, but in the case of the, what was the Brave Stadium is you had 70 acres of which, uh, you know, about 35 of it was parking lots. And so you had parking lots that were empty with, uh, you know, trash bags floating through them on uh, non-game days, which was the vast majority of the year. Nobody wanted to live there. And then surrounding it, the shops that once, um, you know, was these bustling little uh, streetcar uh, uh, rows of shops became places for people to park cars on game days. So all these shops became vacant, became the, uh, the owners just used them to, to park cars on for game days. That left the blight increased around the area. And so when the Braves left a few years ago, there was what was to happen with this stadium. And so what we were able to do in conjunction with our very capable and competent partners was started with this uh, row of shops, some of which had been vacant for 50 years. And so imagine a, a uh, you know, row of two sides of a row of street front shops that went on for uh, two and a half blocks and that next to you know, 35 acres of vacant parking lots. And so we went in and started fixing up these little buildings one by one, and one led to the next, and one led to the next. And we were fortunate enough that some of the um, great, well, two of the great restaurateurs in, in Atlanta saw what we were doing, came down and said, you know, we're all in. How do we join on? And those two restaurants went on to become, uh, we've now signed leases with 14 of them. Um, we wow. created a, a string of uh, uh, courtyards and patios and some uh, shops. And then that, the idea of that coming together led to um, 700 uh, student housing units being built there, Georgia State. Uh, university is part of the project uh, that led to a new grocery store and in, in what had been a food desert where a grocery store hadn't existed for 30 years um, that led to uh, about 1500 new uh, multifamily units it led to a hundred for sale um, uh, terrific for sale housing units and so what happened is this small little, um, and, and, and this is in an area where you can sort of, uh, you know, opportunity had passed this area by for a long period of time, even though it's right in the middle of Atlanta. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting study, and I'd encourage anybody to go to call us up and come see it in person. But, but before you, uh, if you can't do that, go to Summerhill atl.com and you can start to get a sense of what's happened there but it's basically taking a using a couple of <laughs> a little two and a half block stretch of shops and restaurants as a catalyst to create uh, 
you know, maybe a billion dollars worth of, of value in, in what surrounds it um, and improving, uh, improving neglected property um, and adding new life to a very important part of the geography of uh, Atlanta's history. That is awesome. So this catalytic um, couple of blocks that you guys did and having these restaurants come in. So how, how again, specifically can you align like the restaurant's interest or these, these food, um, these food and beverage concepts interest in a way that helps everyone instead of siloing them, like specifically some of the projects you guys have done, how have you seen this work? In that case, some of the first movers had a um, some sort of a, a tie to the area. So there was maybe a bit of altruism at the get go where they where, you know, uh, one of the folks grandparents had lived there in the in the neighborhood. And um, so things like that. So there was a little bit of that. But I think what <clears throat> for the most part is people saw in a, in a town like Atlanta, these areas are, uh, are extremely rare. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, Atlanta's history has gotten buffed out. <laughs> and so finding these little nodes that still have a little soul left in them, um, people really respond to. So when, uh, the first initial movers saw an opportunity to participate in something that was either they had a, some sort of a tie to, or something that had a, uh, that was just flat out going to be cool. They wanted to join in. So when that happened and they got open, then it, there's sort of this, um, uh, you know, that led to, to the housing, then the housing, uh, it's kind of a virtuous cycle. So so new housing leads to new energy of people hanging around in a coffee shop or people eating um, eating barbecue out on the patio. That brings more people, brings more energy, and that sort of builds on itself. So I think that interests are aligned in that everybody's kind of rowing in the same direction as the as um, the more we can. Uh, uh, take out these parking lots, the more we can unpave uh, parking <laughs> lots and put in some paradise, uh, that has uh, every little square foot of that that we can do helps the whole. And then the whole uh, strengthens everything around it. And people are finding, uh, you know, the, the residents that have been there uh, are finding a new sense of pride in their community. People are wearing t-shirts that say Summerhill on them. Um, you know, things like that, that have really changed the, the attitude and feel about it. And now that's starting to, now there's an avalanche of, of money coming in at, but in small scale of doing things that are not overwhelming to the neighborhood, but are, but are things that add a new vibrancy to it. That's awesome. So how do you see in your experience, the, the, you know, there's always the chicken and the egg. Do we build a place people want to live with great commercial stuff or do we build um, places for people to live residential stuff and then the commercial will come? How do you see the interplay between residential and commercial really fitting and, and, and the scale of residential to make a place get to sustainable? 
<clears throat> I think it takes, um, uh, you, you know, you, you can't build enough residential to sustain or maybe to an extent you can an office. You, you can build a big enough office building to, to create a viable sandwich shop at the bottom. But but to do something of, of scale, it's it's almost impossible to build enough residential in a short enough period of time to to have an uh, have an effect like that. Um, but you can also uh, 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 there's a there's an interesting book out that I'm working through that's uh, the great story by the guy that started texas roadhouse mm -hmm. which is uh uh he's a he's a funny character but he was talking about one of his one of their early on most successful stores in a little town in kentucky was doing six million dollars in sales and the town had a population of you know i think fifteen thousand or twenty thousand people and so going through their math they figured that um that about a third of the town was there twice a week or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm, I'm getting the math wrong, but, but anyway, they were able to create a store that did $6 million of sales out of a, out of a tiny community. So the idea that, um, uh, you know, if, if, if you can create something and, and the other, the other way that we like to think about stuff is finding something that, <coughs> is working even just a little bit. And so even the most downtrodden things, uh, the most banged up areas, uh, any area has something that's working, something that's interesting, something that's cool. Um, in, in the case of Summerhill, we had these, uh, you know, vast, vast parking lots that had you know, nothing going on, but down the side street was this row of, of these shops. And specifically they were missing, had some missing teeth to them where the buildings had fallen down in between them. Mm -hmm. And so that led to the idea of, Hey, why don't we take these, um, you know, old buildings we will fill in uh, some of the spaces between them and create courtyards and patios and that will be a very unique situation in Atlanta where you've got historic buildings with these uh, internal courtyards that you, you can see from the street all linked by sidewalks and it'll become, uh, you know, a destination type place. And on one of the buildings was a rusted sign, one of those old, uh, you know, Coca-Cola type signs mm -hmm. that said regular dinners. <laughs> and it was a... Uh, you know, from, uh, you know, from the forties or fifties type place. And one of the great, uh, you know, young entrepreneurial restaurant guys in town, terrific young chef came down there and said, I want the building that has the regular dinner sign on it. So this rusted old sign that had been neglected and sat there, nobody, you know, gave a damn about for the, for the past 50 years that registered with him. And so basically built a, uh, you know, kind of built his brand around this little um, storefront restaurant with a regular dinner sign on the front. So <clears throat> the idea that these, that there's always, there's always something if you, if you look and then 
so you find that one or two things that are working and then you add to it. And so in that case, um, we said, gosh, you know, you've got that regular dinner sign. What if there was on the front? What if there was a mural on the side of the building and commissioned some local artists to put a mural on the side of the building? Well, now you've got a mural on the side. You got the regular dinners on the front. There's the other half of the storefront. Well, there's another uh, some other great young um, entrepreneurial guys that had this idea of a, of a fried chicken sandwich restaurant. And so they said, so uh worked with them, got them to go in next door. And then that had a patio between the patio and the fried chicken place. We had a barbecue joint. So now you've got a fried chicken place, a, a, a big patio with a smokehouse in it, a barbecue joint in this um, uh, place with the regular dinner sign. Well, now you got a little action. So across the street became, was a vacant lot. Well, why don't we build a little collection of shops there so we put together 10,000 square feet of shops on the other side of the street and then that so now we have you had both sides of the street well that uh reflects over and <clears throat> starts filling in the rest of the box up and down the street and now uh you know four years later and a whole lot of heartache the the thing's almost complete overnight success after all that work, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, right. Everybody exactly. should have seen it. So how, how have you aligned with restaurants sometimes? Have you funded them yourself or done unique things to help them get in there when you see an operator with promise? Yeah. The, um, the, we do that in a lot of ways. And so, you know, starting, and I guess that goes back to, to, you know, starting in this, in the early, uh, in the early nineties is being able to take, um, you know, it's a very common practice, as you know, is to provide a, uh, provide a building and some improvement dollars and say, you know, go get them tiger and, and hoping <laughs> to be able to be able to have, uh, to pick the right people, um, that will have some success. And I think we've, um, you know, just by doing it and having, you know, lots of failures of what didn't work out have been able to, to look for, um, you know, and select the kind of people that, uh, you know, will, will do, um, that'll be able to succeed. And when we, when we find those, um, you know, we'll start putting, more money in them and maybe fund them in the next thing, maybe fund them in the next thing. And so what, what maybe starts out as, Hey, uh, we'll give you the space and some, some free rent, maybe point you in the direction where you can find your own money, right. um, all the way up to in, in many instances, Hey, we'll provide all the capital. You provide the, <laughs> the operation. And so we, we've, um, we do that in a number of cases. Well, it's so important. Um, we've seen the same thing. Most of the time when we go into a small town, there's who we call a patron or someone that is trying to make the place flourish. What we'll often do is align the rents and the operations in such a way that it's win-win. Like you don't ask yourself, what could the rent be? You ask it, what should it be by reverse engineering a performer from the restaurant yeah. side and then get to break even and say, I tell you what, it's going to be reasonable to break even, then we're going to share above break even in such a way, percentage-based lease. So 
things like that where you do where you provide all the capital what are some ways you align those guys in a, that'll work for them and for you that that helps you know kind of absorb some of that risk <clears throat> so in in many cases we will have a um, in, in the best cases, we have a direct ownership uh, share in these businesses. So we provide the capital, you provide the operation, and you know we'll whack up the proceeds the best we can. Um, in other cases, we will have a um, tiered percentage rent uh, type arrangement. Um, we had a very difficult space in another property, um, uh, kind of tucked back in a corner, triangular shaped, um, about one foot of frontage, and uh, but but was in a area that we thought would had a lot of promise, and so we structured a uh, found one of the best operators in the in the south. They were willing to take a take a run at it. Um, we provided, oh, probably 80% of the capital. They were able to come up with the other one. We set a uh, base rent at a very low threshold, maybe half of what the market was. And then based on uh, sales thresholds, that um, we, we participated in a percentage rent sort of arrangement. And it had a number of tiers as those sales thresholds were met. And so now the total revenue that's coming out of that place is probably 2x what market rent would be. So, um, you know, the base rent was half of what market would be, but, but because they've been in there and have been able to success, be successful, um, they're paying probably twice of what the market is and they're happy to be doing so because that means they're making a big pile of dough. Well, and that's really, um, how do you see the interconnect kind of between you as an investor or developer mindset and then how that adds value to the property? Like so much of our value of properties is based on the rents we generate. A dollar of, of income from, a, from an operating business and a dollar of rents is a different dollar, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think that, and that, and that's where, um, you know, it's, it's having a, there, there's a lot of ways to do this there. We've seen this come together. There are, um, but having a much larger perspective on the area is where, um, where this starts to make sense. So if you think about the, independent coffee shop um you know with uh they they're not really selling espresso drinks <laughs> so much as they're helping you sell housing and so once you put that on or the or the uh you know the the vintage bookshop or the uh record store um or the, or the barbecue joint, they're not as much in that business as they are in improving the values of the, of the community. So you, so you put that hat on instead of trying to wring the last dollar 
out of those folks, what you what you want to do is is create an environment where they're making plenty of money and they're super happy to be there. And um, but pick the right ones that have the halo effect on everything that's around it. And then your money is made. The money that supports the thing on everything that's around it, as opposed to within those four walls. So as a result of that, where we've seen, um, we've got a queue of uh, six different projects right now, about half of them are with municipalities, where they've seen what we do, and if they're willing to, to uh uh, are excited to work with us where they would supply us, uh, you know, property under fav uh, very favorable terms because they in turn will benefit from the halo that affects all the rest of the properties within their municipality or some of the rest of them. So probably half of the things we're working on are with municipalities. So, so it's sort of the inverse. They're <clears throat> They've got a very wide aperture. They're benefiting from, from this, putting some beachfront within their community. Right. The other, the other half of the folks that were that are in the queue are um, larger uh, developers that have a large-scale project. And as a point of differentiation, as a way to put some energy and, and, and soul into what they're doing is they're willing to provide property at a, at a, uh, uh, you know, favorable price or some sort of financing mechanism or mm -hmm. something like that, because they're benefiting from what's around it. And then in the last case, we've got a couple, uh, we've, well, we've got, two projects where we are the, where we've been um, doing, you know, building this type of product and we've been ourselves able to accumulate um, land for, uh, you know, higher density uses because we've already built the golf course. <laughs> and we were able to, to buy some of the land around the golf course that we built We'll, we'll be able to benefit from that. So we're doing, uh, teamed up with another group and doing a 200 unit multifamily property. And then we're looking at uh, a similar thing with a, with a social club and a hotel um, that are all sort of beneficiaries from the groundwork that we've been laying in this one area for the past 15 years. So you mentioned before uh, the idea of getting a toehold by a small property and then a foothold uh -huh. and those things. How does incrementalism look or how have you experienced that? It's one thing to have a huge kind of uh, cluster of properties or a lot of the 70 acres or 30 acres of parking, like these large numbers. But what, what about when you're being incremental? How do you do that? What does that mean? So any, anywhere um, that you go that has, uh, you, you know, it's almost scientifically impossible to build something cool all at once right and, <laughs> and i mean you can build something interesting you can build some you know crazy architectural uh thing all at once that that people go wow that's that's something that's interesting but it's but you can't build beauty in in a in a uh right out of the gate and all at once um i'm actually looking at 
I'm in, uh, not fair right now, but I'm looking out over the Mediterranean. I'm in a town called Positano, Italy, and there's sort of cascading down the hills are all these houses that have been built over, you know, probably the last three or 400, 500 years. But the complexity and the, and the fabric of what's been created there could never have been done at once. It's, it's, it's just incredibly striking as to there's no possible way that any of that could have been built. It has to sort of evolve and emerge. And each, each little building has to be done step by step based on what's happened um, to the one before it. So even in this little place that um, where I am, there's a, uh, there's one behind it. And so the awning that was built sort of creates the, a little bit of privacy from the one above it that's looking down. At, I mean, this, this place has been here for 100 years. But the, the way that the flower pots are situated, um, every little, there's thousands and thousands of little movements that have been made within this one little, you know, 1500 square foot uh, villa where I am. The, and that has helped shape the ones around it and the ones around those, each one sort of responding to the next. And that's what happens with you know, towns or villages or, or all the great places where you, where you take a picture, <laughs> um, uh, where it, where it doesn't happen, you know, you, you don't, you, you rarely see people, um, you know, uh, taking photos in front of their local regional mall. <laughs> and even, even though that also has a couple of hundred shops in it, but, but it's these places, um, there's something about the human psyche that responds to these places that evolve and emerge uh one from the next sort of incrementally and so the whenever um whenever possible that's what we um are trying to do and we've been fortunate enough to be able to do that in, in a number of these cases where you know, I mentioned one one property. We've been um, doing that for the past fifteen years, and you know, fifteen years is nothing compared to a place <laughs> like where I'm sitting right now. But you you start, but it's, but it's, at least it's a start, and it's different from doing it in in six months. And um, so so yeah, the the idea of starting with something and then responding to that by what's working with that or what effect that has on the next place and the next place and being able to, to have things have their own natural evolution is how you start to create the soul that people respond to. Yeah, we have, we've seen that so much. It just, it gets a little better and a little better. Um, I'm sure with all this work you've done, you've had some failures, some things hadn't worked and uh, oh, how, man. how has, how long, uh, how, how long you got? <laughs> how has failure shaped the way y'all do business in this? Like what, what's one or two takeaways that said, this is a few things we learned in such a, such a way that it shaped us. It's our not to do list kind of thing. Um, yeah, plenty, plenty of examples there. Um, specific to this conversation, we, um, when we so, so we had been investing in you know restaurants for you know using other people's money for 10 years and then for probably 10 years on our own my partner and I in the form of 
tenant improvement allowances where we would say, you know, we'll give you the space and here's a little bit of money for you to fix it up. And, and we will, um, uh, you know, we're making a bet on you, et cetera. And then, you know, going back to the previous conversation that we had that the idea of, gosh, we, we should take a more involved approach and we can put more money in these things, get more of the upside um, in return for that. And we've been doing it for a long time. So we said, how would we go about that? Well, we went out and teamed up with um, some experienced people in the food and beverage world and said, we'll start a operating company that does this and we'll operate places. Uh, they, they had a long history in the business. We'll fund you. You go out and operate these places and we'll, we'll uh, benefit from it. And um, that, that feeling of getting, uh, hit in the face with a tire iron is, is what happened uh, within a, within a, within a few short months and there's there's uh, it was a bloody and painful experience and, and um, uh, you know what, what what's the line of when money and experience come together uh, people with experience get the money and people with the money get the experience and um, so so we saw from the inside, we, we got a crash course on how the business really works from the inside. And we had gone, you know, for us had gone pretty big with this group to get started. And it was a abject failure. But the two things that came out of it, or many, many things came out of it. Um, one of which was, um, you know, we, it was, we were very thankful that we, that, that it didn't work in retrospect because we would have, it would have eventually not worked and we would have been far deeper into it later on before we realized that it didn't and, it, and that this was not the right management team to go for it. We also learned the importance of having, um, operators that uh, that know what they're doing. And so even though our original management team looked good on paper, they didn't have the they didn't have the experience of running places on their own. So we'd created this mess. Um, we then to help us get out of the mess, teamed up with a group of experienced operators that had their own operating company and had been doing well. And we said, Hey, can you help drag us out of the ditch here and brought them in as partners to sort of salvage what we had started. And that made all the difference in the world. And they were uh, unbelievably successful in, in riding the ship. And so had we, you know, not screwed up the first time we never would have gotten uh, to the point that we are today and then been able to say, okay, here's what, here's where we messed up. And what we really need to be doing is finding the right, uh, we can build the properties, we can create the properties, but it's what goes on within those four walls. And that requires folks that are experts in, in operation and entrepreneurialism and have done it before as, and so that has led us to being able to create, um, putting us in the position where we can create, uh, 
you know, lots of different ventures with lots of different people to, to help make those things occur. Um, that was one, um, you know, the, the, on the capital side, um, we, uh, you know, operated our business through, you know, I, I said, I started in the, in the, uh, RTC aftermath, uh, lived through that. And, you know, some of the, the stuff around 2000, that was pretty exciting. And then, and then through the, and then we had our, we're operating our company, you know, right on through the great financial crisis. So we got to see, um, uh, you know, we were able to skirt a lot of landmines, got pretty close to a couple of them. And, uh, but we're able to see, get, get a, um, you know, a, a really good sense of uh, how much those things can sting <laughs> when you don't have them capitalized, right? So I think those are, in you know plenty of examples in both of those we've had a lot of experience with problematic um uh you know folks in business and so a big part of our uh life is being really sure who you want to team up with and finding people that you like to work with and and knowing that these things go through all kinds of ups and downs so Surrounding yourself with with folks you like is a is a, and have fun with is a is the other sort of big part of the deal. So in capital, I guess did you go through seasons like did y'all start raising capital early on once you came and created your own business? How has kind of your capital story looked, and um, what are you thinking about now around that as some of the best ways to capitalize these projects? Um, yeah, we've had. You know, we everything that we do, do and have done is is in a partnership with um, other folks, and so, you know, depending on the, um, usually we get involved in things when they have a, uh, or historically, we would go out and find things that had a lot of hair on them, and uh, would do what we could to get that knocked off, get the environmental problem taken care of or get the zoning taken care of or get the problem tenancy taken care of and then <clears throat> go through the exercise of getting it ready to be built um, uh, for whatever the new project was, putting a bow on it and then going out and attracting more capital for that part. So we, we have and had a core group of uh, private investors that would um, that had the had the broad shoulders and stomach to to jump in on the early end of these things, and then um, as those as we were able to to get things pushed further along, then we would depending on the size or scale of the project, then it would be right for more of an institutional type partner, um, and. So those folks would come in once we'd worked out a lot of the details and it was a lot clearer path, et cetera. Um, and so that's how we've, you know, historically operated. And, and as that has evolved, we have moved into more of a, um, where we're also teaming up with um, some of the really, some of the most talented, uh, you know, developers in the, in the country where we'll play the role of we'll, we'll set up a venture on an overall project 
that's usually much larger. And, um, you know, some of these things are, you know, several hundred million dollars or more sized undertakings. Our role will be in, um, you know, executing the, the catalytic part of it. Their role will be in uh, executing the commodity part of it that that benefits from it so the blocking um, and tackling around it yeah. yeah so uh you know we're we're working on something right now where it's a um you know uh 900 square foot office building with uh some land you know around it our role is to create the you know, create the golf course and ocean, uh, at the, at the street level with that. And, and, um, you know, our partner will be, uh, putting together, you know, being setting the property up to benefit from that with all the office space on top of it. So in cases like that, we're really, we're providing a role within the larger project. We have, a you know, minority interest, but in the whole thing, and their role is to, um, you know, raise the capital, bring the capital to do these these much larger things. So <clears throat> that combined with, um, uh, you know, we're we're looking with these with the stuff that we have in the queue. It's a it's a mix of doing stuff with private investors, with institutional investors, and with large developers. And then, as I mentioned before. We're seeing uh, more and more so we've been approached with, um, we've got two underway right now, uh, three underway right now with municipalities where um, they've said, hey, we, we own this land or this building. Um, can you uh, fix it and <laughs> make it make it vibrant? And uh, to do that, we will, uh, you know, come up with a creative financing in some cases, you know, uh, where they will take equity risk or they'll loan money or they'll contribute property or those sorts of things because their benefit is less um, financial on whatever that one transaction is and more on the, the overall benefit to the community. It's awesome. I can't, I'm, there's a thousand things, of course, I'd love to ask you. And as we kind of round out this time, there's three questions we always ask to kind of um, do this. And we'll have to do it again. You've got so much yeah. knowledge. Um, it's, it's unreal to just talk about only one slither of your business. But it does <laughs> yeah. seem you, you've, you focused on building things that make a difference and, and make, as you said, this halo effect to the properties. And, and we found that in a little different way through our own path of failing forward to do that in historic small towns. And, yes. um, but, 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 but I, I harmonize with the same things you're saying, and we've seen the same results in our own portfolio and in others that, um, that when it's properly aligned, iconic things can make all the difference. Um, they really right. can. So one question we ask is, what are you reading that we should read? <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I try to read everything I can. Um, the, I think for folks that are, uh, have enough interest to listen to this, I think, and if you haven't, um, 
gotten acquainted with a guy named uh, Christopher Alexander, uh, whose iconic book was something called A Pattern Language. And it, once you get through that, if you if you graduate up, there's a series of books called the called the Nature of Order, and uh, for the for the uh, types of folks that have the poor sense to be listening to podcasts like this, I'll, I'll guarantee you they'll they'll find some interest in it. But basically, Christopher Alexander was a was an architect and a mathematician. He just died, uh, I guess, last month, month before last, and he. Um, to, to answer your question about iteration sort of based everything that he did on iteration. And so a lot of, a lot of his ideas and concepts, um, you know, made their way into actually software development, uh, Wikipedia, the, the basis of wow. Wikipedia is based on, on what he does of, of, you know, having a bunch of people being able to continue continually iterate on information. A lot of software design is based on what he does. But in a pattern language, he talks about how very, uh, you know, specific steps that make towns, buildings, communities um, uh, function better aesthetically and logistically. And then in a nature of order, is a really heady, heavy uh, uh, four-volume set of photos, and and um, you know most of it's crazy talk for the uninitiated. <laughs> but once you start getting in there, it's an explanation of why things are beautiful. What makes wow. something beautiful? What makes people respond to? Uh, uh, beauty, how it's created, how it works in nature, and why when you see something that you say, man, that's beautiful. Here are the principles that are behind that. So once you understand that, you can start to understand how that works in, in you know, communities and, and uh, buildings and making places that people respond to. That is awesome. I've never had those recommendations. Those will be great. So yeah. who, and I love you saying if people listening to this podcast, they could probably stomach <laughs> that. So you're right. We are in an esoteric small world of people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so who is doing good work that you notice in the world and you say, you know what, they do good work, or this is something good happening in the world that you'd like They said, if you, if you could share something with us to go look at. Um, well here, you know, in, uh, in Atlanta, there's a woman uh, named Greta DeMaio who runs something called the PATH Foundation, P-A-T-H. PATH Foundation has built something like 300 miles of paths through Atlanta. So imagine, just get your mind around that. And when I say paths, these aren't dirt paths, you know, these are, you know, uh, no multi-use type things and then most recently because of her experience in running that there's for the for people that aren't familiar with it atlanta's been radically transformed over the past uh you know five or ten years with uh something called the atlanta beltline the atlanta beltline is a 22 mile collection network of trails and most a lot of it's on former railroad 
abandoned railroad right away, et cetera. But it basically encircles the center core of the city. And it's built to, uh, you know, walking, biking, uh, we'll have transit on it in the future. But it has turned Atlanta inside out. And so the idea of, you know, when you think about Atlanta, any, any, but most people think of, uh, you know, strip malls, strip clubs, Escalades, that kind of a, that kind of a city. And what this has done is created this pedestrian river that, that runs through, um, that, that encircles the city. And so the development, instead of being at the interchange, out on the exurbs, it's still there, but it's created a whole new wave of development within the city, all of it facing this, um, this belt line. And it's just shoulder to shoulder. It looks like a New York City street on a pretty day. Um, and there's nothing that's been uh, very few, very few improvements that have happened uh, in Atlanta that, that you could point to that have had such a, such a major uh, development impact as this. And so, so anyway, to, to finish that, Greta is just an absolute bulldog um, in a Chanel suit. That uh, <laughs> I've, I've learned a lot just watching how she can she can take. Uh, you know, she she's she gets started at no because she's having to deal with people like uh, <laughs> utility companies and and railroads and folks like that and and uh, politicians and still being able to figure out a way to get these pass built of, of in, in our uh, little bit of interaction, I've learned, learned a ton from her and what she's doing is transformative for one of the, you know, biggest cities in the country. That is awesome. And man, somebody who can get up and just go after and wear people's nose down is a powerful force. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a exactly. force of nature. So um, the last one is, what have you done that we should do? Tell us about an experience and something that you say, hey, this has enriched my life. And I recommend <laughs> to do it. Well, you know, I spend um, as, as, as much, as I, much time as I can in the uh, sort of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming part of the world. And a lot of the work that I do in other places is to make sure there's enough buildings. So people don't want to build them out there. You <laughs> <laughs> keep everybody satisfied, not having to, not having to do stuff out there, but there's a, um, uh, so, so in central Idaho, there's a, uh, there's something called the Frank church wilderness. The Frank church wilderness is about two and a half million acres of no development. So it's the mm -hmm. anti antithesis of what we <laughs> spend the rest of our time doing. It's the largest undeveloped area. And by undeveloped, there's no roads. There's nothing. Um, largest undeveloped area in the, in the lower 48 states. And through the middle of that is part of the Salmon River system and a river called the Middle Fork of the Salmon River that runs through this 2.2 million acres. And so from one end to the other uh, is a river trip of about six days. Wow. And you put in that um, 
river and it's through you know uh some of the most scenic parts of of america that you can never get to you can't drive to it you you know if you wanted to walk to it it would take you you know a month or two to find some of these places and it's a hundred miles of river that uh you know through all sorts some of the most scenic parts of the world and it's you know five or six days depending on how long it takes you to get through it through some you know crazy white water to you know just beautiful and calm areas but there are anybody that's done that is forever changed Mm. um yeah so i would i would put that on the list (laughs) and they're sort of the uh, I don't care who you are, where, what your background is, where you grew up. There's, you know, before Middle Fork and after Middle Fork. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I, I tell you, I thought this was going to be great. It exceeded my expectations, the time with you. Um, I love you're so sophisticated, thoughtful, and practical about the way you go about things. And uh, I know today is going to add tremendous value to everyone that listens to it. Um, Thank you for what you do. Look forward to coming up and seeing you soon and having you in Opelika. And thank you for taking some time while you're visiting one of the most beautiful places in the world to (laughs) hang out with us. All right, man. All right. I sure appreciate it. Okay, man. Thank you. Thank you.